never read the Gospel of Luke through, then I encourage you to do so. We're going through it uh, consecutively on Sunday mornings. Last Sunday we looked at the parable which really stands at the front of the parables of Jesus, which I've preached on a number of times, but which is loaded with such theological significance that there is no danger of any people exhausting its full meaning. The parable of the soils, the four responses, uh, to the word of God, uh, inevitably Jesus had to explain why the rain which falls on the just and the unjust and the word of God which falls is received by some and by others rejected. The key, of course, to the hearing of the word of God is preparation. That's the key to the sowing of seed that's going to be productive and fruitful. It's preparation. It means that our hearts should be open and receptive and willing that we should not come into church and think, oh, I've heard it all, but that rather we should come praying, oh, God, speak to me today. Speak some fresh word. Let me forget about everybody else here, but let me think about how this applies to my own mind and to my own life and to my own heart. Someone has said that he talked of lilies, of vines and corn, the sparrow and the raven, Tales so natural yet so wise were on men's hearts engraven, and yeast and bread and flax and cloth and eggs and fish and candles. See how the whole familiar world he most divinely handles. Jesus put these marvelous things into our minds. And then he not only said these great words, but he did these great deeds such as George so beautifully read a moment ago. We sang, Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, and we saw him ruling in nature. And now we see him ruling over the powers of evil in a man's life. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 26. This continues our reading. And they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, and when he had come out onto the land, a certain man from the city met him who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tomb. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion for many demons had entered him. And they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountains, and the demons entreated him to permit them to enter into the swine, and he gave them permission. 
And the demons came out from the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And when those who tended them saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to depart from them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And he departed, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. There is a special uh, tribe tribal custom in the mountains of Algeria where the Berber tribes people have what is called a worry tree that when someone is sick and they're afraid that they're going that someone will die or when there has been a loss or when there is some great tragedy that strikes that people tear white strips of cloth and tie them onto trees out in front of the houses and this is supposed to have something to do with the spirits of evil that sweep through the, the high Algerian mountains. I suppose that if that custom were carried out here, there is not a house, but what some of us would at one time or another not have to tear a white strip of cloth and put it outside to indicate some fear or some worry that besets us. And one of the reasons that I wanted especially to approach our theme today in the way that I am approaching it is that I spoke this week with a young man whose mind has been stampeded into fears that are no longer kept within their proper perspective, and he has great need of help. I talked to another person who's fearful because of the dreaded disease of cancer. I talked to someone else, a businessman, who has made millions and lost millions, uh, who told of one thing that he had done outside of the will of the Lord, he felt, which had cost him greatly. And so when I thought about all of this, I thought about life and how it's looked upon as a journey. If you remember the Odyssey, one of the oldest of, uh, stories or poems, uh, Odyssey has to do with journey. We sometimes speak of life as a journey. Uh, and sometimes we talk about the storms that we encounter during the course of life. We say a person will either sink or swim. Uh, we say that we're going through a particular storm of trouble that hits us at a time. And so the Bible teaches us a great deal about storms. And we see two storms that were read in the Gospel of Luke today. 
and two storms that were not read that I want to talk with you about. There are four things concerning storms that I wish to say. The first great storm story in the Bible is that one which is told about Jonah the prophet. We often are so concerned about Jonah's being swallowed by the great fish that we're so taken up with what goes on inside the fish that we do not stop to think about what went on inside Jonah. But it's very important for us to remember what went on inside him because Jonah got into a storm because of disobedience. That's the first thing that will often lead us into a storm and especially if we belong to God, if we are one of his. You see, Jonah had received a direct command from God to go and preach in Nineveh. Nineveh was a terrible enemy of Jonah's people, and Jonah wanted to save God from making a mistake, and so he refused to go and preach in Nineveh. Although he had been commanded to go, and before you quickly condemn Jonah, think about yourself. Would you obey God quickly if he told you today to go and preach in the Kremlin, or to go and preach in Tehran, or to go and preach in some other difficult place in the world, would you? Well, Jonah felt that way, and though he had received a direct command from God, he disobeyed God. He thought God would be making a terrible mistake to preach his gospel, his good news of repentance to these Ninevites, and so Jonah went to find a ship that would take him far away from carrying out the very mission that God had given him to do. I often like to point out at this time that there are Christians who disobey God and they find something convenient to help them in that disobedience. And they say, well, look, it must mean that God wants me not to go to Nineveh because here is a ship and it's going to Tarshish. Isn't that convenient? And so I can, that must be my leading, that I'm to get on the ship and to go to Tarshish. Well, that was disobedient. And not only that, but when he gets on board the ship, he goes to sleep when they're in the midst of a storm. And there are people who disobey God and are living in disobedience to him. And they say, well, it's all right. I have peace about it. I can sleep. Well, so could Jonah. He was sleeping all right, right in the midst of a great storm that God had sent. God sent the storm and brought great uh, fear upon all that were in that vessel, and Jonah was waked up, and the pagan sailors marveled that he could sleep until Jonah confessed what he had done and told them that they must throw him overboard. And they were rather heroic people. They didn't even want to throw him overboard. I would have tossed him over real quick. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's, not, that's something you better remember. If you're hanging around a backslidden Christian, you are going to get in trouble. You will get in trouble. Jonah likes got everyone on that ship killed because he was disobeying God. And if you disobey God, you go against the plain teaching of his commandments and try to disguise it as saying that it's all right for you and have a permissive morality. That's a contradiction in terms. Last week we talked about the parable of the sword. Has anyone ever had a permissive garden? You look at a permissive garden. 
all weeds. That's what it is. And it's stupid to say you have a permissive morality because that's a contradiction in terms. And so when a person is in disobedience to God and you're a believer, you better get away from them because they'll get you in trouble. The storm came to Jonah by disobedience. Now the storm that George read to us a moment ago so beautifully from the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Luke came after Jesus had been teaching on the hillside. And he had commanded his disciples to go to the other side of the Lake of Galilee. And Jesus was tired. We say in the Nicene Creed he was very God of very God and very man of very man. That means that he was all of God that he could be and all of man that he could be in two natures. In his human nature, he was tired. He fell asleep, but his sleep was a sleep of obedience. Jonah fell asleep in the sleep of escapism and disobedience and caused trouble. But Jesus fell asleep, weary in doing his Father's will, not of it, but in doing it, and so he fell asleep. And a great storm comes upon the lake. And Jesus' disciples rush to him, and they shake him awake. And one of the other writers, this is recorded in all three of the synoptics, one of the other writers tells us that they, uh, they wake him up, and one said to him, Master, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Don't you care that we're in this storm? And Jesus marveled, that they were afraid. And he said, where is your faith? Where is your faith? The answer to fear is faith. And he stood up and spoke to the sea. And the words there in the original are very beautiful. He simply says to the wind, hush and the wind ceases howling. The waves be still, and there is a calm. And they wonder at him, this ruler of all nature. Now why did the storm come to them? Jonah's storm came through disobedience. Their storm came through design. They were being tested. No one wants to go to sea with a captain who hasn't been in a storm. I've been to sea, and I love the sea. But I wouldn't want to go to sea with a captain who hadn't been through a storm because we might hit a storm. And I would prefer someone with some experience who knew what to do. Now, in the course of life, there are trials that the Lord may send us through. Job went through some terrifying trials. But the Lord God redeemed him out of all of those. And the Lord means to refine and to take away the dross that is in us. He wants us to know that as long as he is with us, that we're okay. Those three Hebrew children who were cast into the burning, fiery furnace said to their king, 
Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us and he will deliver us, but if not, O king, be it known unto thee, we will not bow down to thee nor serve thee. They would be obedient. They would be obedient. That, my friends, is the truest test of your Christian faith is your obedience. You grow in the Christian faith not through your IQ. You grow through your willingness to obey. Trust and obey, says the old song, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. At prayer meeting on Wednesday night, we studied about how Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus had wreaked havoc with the church like a snarling wild animal had ripped up the church. And then how he had been struck on the road to Damascus and the living Christ had appeared to him and told him that he was to be taken into the Damascus to the street called Straight and that there he would meet a believer named Ananias and that Ananias would tell him what he was to do. And I've often thought about Ananias because Ananias was praying and the Lord revealed to him in a vision that Saul of Tarsus was to come to him and almost like Jonah, he wanted to save the Lord from a mistake and Ananias said, Lord, don't you know that this man has wreaked havoc with the church? And the Lord said, he is a chosen vessel a chosen vessel, and I will show him what things he must suffer for my sake. And Ananias obeyed, and when he saw this dreadful creature who had been destroying believers in Jesus, the first words that he says to him are, Brother Saul. That's obedience. That's obedience in a storm a terrifying storm that came there. So Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. Where is your faith? He is with us. When the Hebrew children were cast into that burning, fiery furnace, and the king called out, is your God able to deliver you? He saw that there was one like unto the Son of God who was with him. When Ernest Shackleton, the great Explorer of the Arctic wastes, went there. He took with him a copy, a, a phonograph record of the hymn, Abide With Me, that there was one with them, like unto the Son of God. When David Livingston was in the stifling heats of the jungle of Africa where he died, and I've been there right to his grave on the Zambezi River, in Africa, right to the statue that's erected. His remains are in Westminster Abbey. But at that statue where his heart was supposed to have been taken out and placed in Africa, which he loved so much, he had written in his journal before his death, he has promised I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He has said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. It is, a it is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor, and so there is an end to it. All that Jesus ever promised us was himself. 
And that's what he wanted these disciples to know in that boat, that he was with them. No water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and sky. Jesus was with them there. This tells us a little bit about how God works. He works in a mighty way. One of my favorite preachers who has gone now to be with Jesus was Dr. McFerrin Crow. He was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And Mac used to, used to talk about the a picture, the Mona Lisa, which was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And just about anyone who's been through high school, and certainly people who've been through any kind of art course in college, knows that Leonardo da Vinci uh, painted the Mona Lisa. But how many people know the name of the woman, the Mona Lisa? She was the wife of Zenobi and lived in a little town outside of Naples. And that's all we know about her. And that's all we need to know about her. We know about the creator who painted the canvas about her. And what is happening here is that the storm belongs to God and the little boat belongs to God and the disciples belong to God, and Jesus is God in human flesh, and he's in control of all of that. He is the creator, and he controls it all. What we need to do is to see through the storm, to see the hand of our creator at work. There's a blessed old Negro spiritual that I used to have a baritone in my church who could sing like Gabriel, uh, that said, that says, stand by me when the storms of life are raging. Stand by me. When the world is tossing me like a ship upon the sea, thou who rulest wind and water, stand by me. Now that's the secret, that he stands with us. And when he is with us, we are not afraid. We are not afraid because he is with us. He only promised himself. That makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? When you know that he's with you. Now then, there is a third storm here. The third storm is the storm that we saw in that poor demoniac. That man who, when Jesus had reached the shores, came out of the tombs, naked, having cut himself, screaming wildly, possessed of demons. And there is that about demons which is difficult for us to understand. There are people who make too light of it and people who see too much of it. But the scriptures certainly teach that there was such a thing as demons. These disembodied spirits somehow wanted to possess a body. And so they cried out through this man to Jesus to send them into a herd of swine. And Jesus, Jesus sent them into that herd of swine and delivered that poor man. And he sat at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. We read an interesting thing. 
that the people of that city came out where Jesus was and wanted him to depart. And John Oxnam has written it this way, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get you hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole, since we have lost our swine? And Christ went sadly. He had wrought for them a sign of love and hope and tenderness divine. They wanted swine. Christ stands without your door and gently knocks. But if your gold or swine the entrance blocks, he forces no man's hold, he will depart and leave you to the treasures of your heart. No cumbered chamber will the master share, but one swept bare by cleansing fires, then plenished fresh and fair with meekness and humility and prayer. There will he come, yet coming even there he stands and waits, and will no entrance win until the latch is lifted from within. They wouldn't allow Jesus to come into their town. Think of all their blind people who didn't get to see. Think of all their lame people who didn't get to walk. Think of all their lepers who were not cleansed. They wanted their swine. There are people today who are in devilish industries of pornography, who are in other things that destroy the souls and minds and hearts of men and women who care for nothing, save money. That's all they want. That's all they want. The devil sent this storm into this man's heart, and Jesus delivered. He delivered the man, and the man sat at Jesus' feet clothed and peaceful inside and in his right mind. And that to me is one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible. And when Jesus departed their coast, this poor man wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you'll go back and show what great things God has done for you. And so the man went back to tell what great things God had done for him. I wonder what it must have been like when he went back to his home. If he had a home, a wife and children, and they looked out the window and saw him coming, and instead of shrieking and screaming, instead of being naked, he's clothed, he's peaceful, he comes to them again. My, what a difference. They see in him the great things that Jesus have, has done. I've known people who, when a drunken husband would come home, he would beat up everyone in the house, who after they really came into a saving experience with Jesus, 
and they came back home, the little children were not afraid, and the wife was not afraid. But Jesus had done something wonderful. He had delivered a person from that which was destroying their home and their happiness and their joy. So pray for those who need that deliverance from that storm. And lastly, there is a storm that comes to people who delay doing the will of the Lord. And the story that's told to us about that is in the 27th chapter of Acts. This summer at Regent College, I heard John Stott teach this, and it was one of the most productive and informative lessons I think I've ever heard. And he loves to see and he loves to describe things. And in the 27th chapter of Acts, uh, Luke is a tremendous writer. He not only writes these parables and these great miracles that Jesus does here, and then in the book of Acts, when he writes Acts, he has long speeches that, that uh, are recorded, and then he puts in great adventures that take place. And that's, that shipwreck account of Paul, when he had been arrested in Caesarea, and a man by the name of Julius, a Roman centurion, had taken some special guards with him, and Luke is with them, the one who writes the Gospel of Luke in the Acts of the Apostles, and Aristarchus, who must have been a servant to Paul. He must have signed on as Paul's slave. I've often wondered how many of us would be willing to sign on as the slave of a missionary. Aristarchus deserves a lot of credit. Aristarchus and Paul and Luke are on this ship. And mind you, it was no tiny little ship. There were 275 people on that ship. It was a large grain ship bound for Italy. They were in a certain place, fair havens, where Paul wanted them to winter. And they would not listen to Paul because it was a little town and they wanted to push out and to go to some uh, bigger port or at least try to make more money by getting quicker to Italy. And Paul said, Sirs, I perceive that this journey will be with much harm and danger. But they took a boat on it. And there it said, Everyone in favor of going on, raise your hand. 272 hands went up. They wanted to get out of there. Everyone opposed, raise your hand. Luke, Aristarchus, and Paul. Three. Don't ever be fooled by the majority. <laughs> Don't ever be fooled by the majority. Ever since the, the spies went out in the Old Testament, you've got to be afraid of majority reports. <laughs> and uh, so they sailed. And sure enough, the huge storm hit. And the storm came tremendously. And it looked as though every single life on board that ship would be lost. They had to throw overboard the grain that they were so careful to carry. They had to throw over the tackling of the ship. But now the Lord had his eye on that ship because he had Philippians on that ship and he had uh, uh, First and Second Timothy on that ship and he had Titus and he had a good chunk of the New Testament. He had Luke on that ship and the whole Gospel of Luke and the whole book of Acts. Lord had his eye on that ship. It was going to get there. 
But now they didn't, you, I used to hear old Henry Benson Gindy. He used to pray in Presbytery, Lord, rule and overrule. And I thought, what in the world is Dr. Gindy talking about? Rule and overrule. Well, if they would have listened to what Paul said in the first place, they would have gotten where they were going and had all their wheat and everything else with them. But they wouldn't listen. And so what did it cost them? What my business friend told me about. It cost them all the cargo, cost them their ship, and nearly cost them their lives. The Lord spared them. He spared them because Luke and Paul and Aristarchus were on board that ship. And that teaches us a valuable lesson to learn too. Sometimes we get in trouble because of other people who go on. There wasn't anything Paul could do about it, but God, in his great mercy and love, saved all... You know, I saw that film this week, Quo Vadis. Have you seen that motion picture? It's a tremendous motion picture. It's about the early Christians and how they were put into the arena. And I thought about this when I was reading this account of how... Paul must have been on board that ship when they were bailing water and it was about to sink in Acts 27 and the sailors were panicky and scared to death and Paul said, listen, let me tell you about Jesus. He was put to death and God brought him back from the dead. And you don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of death. And the man said, man, you don't know what I've done in my life. And he said, yeah, but Jesus will forgive you. And Paul would talk to them about Jesus. And a lot of those people on board that ship, those 272 others, were being taken to Rome to be put into the arena for Nero's vicious things that would take place in the combative sports of bread and circuses that went on in Rome. And Paul witnessed to them about Jesus. And the Lord saved. The Lord saved. And so he speaks to us. He wants us to do his will first. And when we do, we can have the cargo kept. If we disobey, uh, then we won't. Let me close by telling you a very familiar story to some of you. George Goodman was a Plymouth Brethren Bible teacher. He's one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers. I have many of his books back in my office. And right in the height of a very fruitful ministry for no reason that anyone could ever determine, George Goodman lost his sanity. He had to be taken and placed in a mental hospital. And for three years, he was detached from reality. And then at the end of that three-year period, for no reason that anyone could explain, his reason returned to him. And he grew better and better, and he was freed from the hospital, and he resumed his ministry again, and became an effective and powerful preacher at the great Keswick meetings in uh, Keswick, England, and in many places here in the United States and in the Bahamas. And at his death, they found written in the back of his Bible these words, He led me by a way of pain, a barren 
and a starless place. I did not know his eyes were wet. He would not let me see his face. He left me like a frightened child, unshielded in a night of storm. How should I dream he was so near? The rain-swept darkness hid his form. But when the clouds were drifting back and dawn was breaking into day, I knew whose feet had walked with mine. I saw his footprints all the way. But Jesus will be with us. If you've never accepted him as your Savior, you could take him on this snowy day and write it down on this day in March 1980 that he made you as pure as snow inside and that he healed you from your sins, that he delivered you from the storms because he is with you. All of us are going to go through storms, but he's promised to be with us. I want to let us bow in prayer. Oh God, our Father, how easy it is for us to see in faith when we read your book the wisdom of being obedient and not disobedient. And because we have faced storms that have been our own making, we come to you and confess and ask forgiveness. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that thou wilt help us to know that your great love which dealt tenderly with your frightened disciples, will also deal tenderly with us in the things that frighten us in our lives and in our homes and in our business and at our work and school. We thank you that it's so easy to believe in your love when we see that poor demoniac clothed and in his right mind, sitting at your feet, peaceful inside. We thank you that your sovereign power rules and overrules and that you will accomplish your own purposes as year succeeds to year, no matter what happens in Afghanistan or in Tehran or any place else in the world. You're in control and that you love each one of us and that you know us by name. Help us to respond to that great love and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.